These words spake Jesus, and lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Hey listeners, this is Nick from Scripture Central, and today's podcast addresses the question, how does Jesus' intercessory prayer point us to the temple? The Gospel of John contains the longest account of the final, intimate moments Jesus shared with his apostles immediately before his atoning sacrifice, death, and resurrection. After delivering a final discourse in the upper room and on the way to Gethsemane, Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and offered a great intercessory prayer for his disciples. Many have noted that this prayer is rightly known as Jesus' high priestly prayer as it immediately preceded his atoning sacrifice. William J. Hamblin has also observed that this prayer should be contextualized within the larger Passover narrative of the last days of the life of Jesus. Especially given the nature of Jesus' last discourse, this prayer serves as a symbolic temple for the Gospel of John. It is the meeting place of heaven and earth where man encounters God. Many aspects of Jesus' prayer thus reflect the ancient temple and its related symbols, ultimately with the hope that Christ's followers can return to God's presence and become like Him. Specifically, Hamblin cites six of these features in the prayer. First, Jesus' prayer can be best understood within the context that Jesus Himself offered at the beginning of His final sermon to the apostles. Jesus told them, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Notably, the phrase, my father's house, only appears one other time in John's gospel, namely when Jesus is cleansing the temple. However, it is clear that in John chapter 14 verse 2, Jesus was referring not to the earthly temple in Jerusalem, but rather to the heavenly temple where God dwells. This can be discerned in Jesus' following statement. I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. In the intercessory prayer itself, this idea is repeated with slight variation. I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. Thus, Jesus makes it clear that he wants his disciples to enter into the presence of the Father in heaven, which is in his heavenly temple. Second, Jesus states twice in his prayer that he has manifested or declared the name of the Father to the disciples and will declare it again. By the time of Jesus, restrictions had been set in place regarding the ritual writing and pronunciation of the name Jehovah that had been revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. These restrictions only permitted priests in the temple to utter the name under two very specific circumstances once a year by the high priest in the temple on the Day of Atonement, or during the daily recitation of the priestly benediction described in Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. Hamblin thus observes that when Jesus declares the name of the Father, he is acting within the framework of two important biblical traditions. First, Jesus is establishing himself as the prophet like unto Moses, to whom God revealed his name. And second, the claim that Jesus revealed the name of the Father to his disciples would also imply that Jesus claimed the authority of the high priest to reveal the name 
and offer an atonement for the children of Israel. Third, throughout his prayer, Jesus refers to the glory of God. In the Old Testament, the glory of Jehovah is the visible manifestation of the presence of God in the temple or tabernacle. Although often described as a pillar of fire and smoke, the glory of the Lord is said in Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 28 to be in the form of a man. Accordingly, Jesus' glory-related statements would have evoked ideas of God's glorious theophanies in the temple. And Christ's postmortal glorification by the Father would imply a glory theophany in the celestial temple. Fourth, Jesus appears to ritually cast Satan out of the midst of the disciples during his prayer when he requests the Father, keep them from the evil. Although not readily apparent in the King James Version, the phrase translated as the evil was widely understood by Christians to refer to the evil one, that is, Satan. As such, Jesus' prayer reflects the practice during the Day of Atonement of casting the scapegoat into the wilderness. This was a symbolic prerequisite for the purification of Israel in preparation for the visitation of Jehovah with the high priest in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle or temple. Fifth, Jesus asks the Father to sanctify his disciples. Sanctify them through thy truth, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. As Hamblin has noticed, language of holiness, sanctity, and consecration is the language of the temple. Just as the priests of the temple underwent a ritual purification and sanctification so they might be able to serve, Christ sanctifies his disciples so that he might send them into the world to teach his gospel. Moreover, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would similarly sanctify himself so that in his sanctified state, he can officiate in the temple to sanctify the community of Israel through the other Day of Atonement rituals. Christ therefore identifies himself as the great high priest as he prepares himself to perform the atonement. He also prepares his apostles to spread the blessings of his atonement to the world through their preaching. Finally, Jesus prays that his disciples may become like him and his Father. Not only will his disciples be allowed to see the glory of God, but they also are given that glory. The glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. As Hamblin has observed, numerous early Christian and Jewish texts culminate with the disciples' ascent to the heavenly temple, where they are enthroned with God. The apostles Peter, John, and Paul likewise refer to the doctrine of becoming like God at various points in their writings. Early Christians viewed this doctrine as the ultimate fate of the righteous saints. Significantly, other early Christian traditions link the prayer Jesus offered in Gethsemane with rites of the temple. In one text called the Acts of John, it is reported that Jesus first told us to form a circle, holding one another's hands, and himself stood in the middle, as he offered this prayer shortly before his arrest. Other early Christians likewise followed this form of prayer in their worship. Hugh Nibley has identified multiple texts that prominently portray an early Christian prayer circle. Much like with intercessory prayer, Nibley observes that the purpose of the prayer circle was to achieve total unity of minds and hearts, 
and ultimately to prepare those involved and those prayed for to enter the presence of the Lord in the heavenly temple. Jesus' great intercessory prayer must have been a profound experience for his close circle of disciples who personally heard him pray on their behalf. Yet, his words are truly for all his followers in all ages, including our own. Jesus himself clarified, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may also be one in us. We can be unified with God as we make and keep covenants, both at baptism and in the temple. Modern saints take upon themselves the name of Jesus Christ, are cleansed from sin as we are washed and sanctified by the Holy Ghost, receive power to overcome the evil one, and ultimately learn all that we must do to enter the kingdom of heaven. As we continually follow Jesus' example, we will enter into a sacred spiritual unity shared between the Father, the Son, and all the holy saints from all dispensations. Thank you for listening to this presentation from Scripture Central. For more information, please visit scripturecentral.org.